Well, today we're continuing our study of uh, the life of King Saul. This is our second week uh, of looking at King Saul. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, thank you uh, once again just for the opportunity to, to come together to worship you based upon the truths of your word. Lord, we confess that uh, there's nothing that brings us more joy than just being in your presence. And Lord, specifically today, we, we just thank you for the indwelling of the Spirit in the life of a believer. Lord, we, we thank you that, that, that you remain with us through the ups and downs, through the good days, through the bad days, through the failures, through the victories. We just thank you that you're with us and you're for us at all times. That, that brings us such great joy. And Lord, to that end, we, we ask just that the Spirit would come, that, that he would do the work that only he can do in these next moments together, that he would convict us where we need conviction, that, that he would give us eyes of faith to see where we need to trust you, that he would encourage us where we're discouraged. Lord, we just pray that you would be present with us, doing a good work in our hearts in these next moments together. Finally, Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, God's empowering presence, and that empowering presence to change us, that remains in our hearts through all the ups and through all the downs. Uh, Joe is at the, the lowest point of his life, and in the same week, two pretty monumental things happened. First off, he had a performance evaluation at work that, that did not go well. Um, and it really caused him to fear, okay, am I going to lose my job? And that very same week, uh, his wife told him that she didn't want a divorce, but she did want a season of, of separation. Now, as you can imagine, there were, there were probably some, there were some common themes that were going on in that. They, they, the boss and, and his wife said it differently, but, but the gist of it was that they both communicated that his aggressiveness, his pushiness was actually pushing people away. There were co-workers that didn't want to work with him because uh, they were nervous about how he was going to explode on them in some sort of small way over some, some sort of small issue. And his wife and, and children, they didn't feel comfortable approaching him uh, with sensitive things because, again, they, they were worried that he was just going to explode on them. He, he had this real critical spirit that, that was really just poisoning those around him. And, and a critical spirit that's one of those, uh, I think, kind of interesting sin struggles in the, in the sense that it's not typically what we would view as like a scandalous sin, right? It's not like the, the ones that get the headlines. And in fact, in Joe's life, he was justifying uh, his critical spirit. But, but for Joe, this was leading him down a road where he was potentially about to lose his job and potentially about to lose his wife and family. There seemed to be powers inside of him that he couldn't control. There were things raging inside of him that he felt like his insides were just out of his control. That's why 1 Samuel 10 is so important. 1 Samuel 10, it's needed because it gives us some clues on how we change and how we grow. We're to believe the promise of God's empowering spirit. When we think the things on the inside are just out of control, we're to go back to these gospel truths that the spirit is indwelling us. And we're to allow him to reign in our lives. So on the inside, that's how change happens. 
Growth begins on the inside in our hearts. And the good news of that is, is that the Lord is the Lord of the heart. The Spirit is more powerful than anything that is raging inside of you. He's more powerful than the flesh. He's more powerful than any demonic force. He's more powerful. And He can fill you. He can strengthen you. He can soften you. He can make all things new. Now, before we dive into 1 Samuel 10, I just want to give you some context of this passage, especially if you weren't with us last week. We're, we're taking some time this summer to look at the, the life of King Saul. And, and his is kind of a, what I consider a morality tale. It's easy to put Saul in a category of just a fool, of just a bad person. And, and I think that misses the point of his life. There's more complexity and I think more reality than to his life than just putting him into those categories. The, the opening of 1 Samuel from, from 1 to chapter 8, it really has a focus on, on the prophet Samuel. And then beginning in chapter 9, all the way to 15, the focus then shifts to King Saul, the first king of Israel. And then after chapter 15, it shifts to a third character, King David. And really, King David is in response to King Saul. This is also set in kind of a transitional period in the, in the history of the nation of Israel. It's transitioning from the time of judges to the time of kings. Again, Saul is, is the first king. David's going to be the second king. And really, Saul is kind of a lead up and a ramp up uh, to King David. But, but I think we, we have to, to be careful as we look at Saul, because as you ramp up to King David, King David is this high point in the monarchy. And he's really a response to the failures of King Saul in many ways. But again, Saul is not um, this person that we can just easily put into like a foolish category. In other words, there's, there's virtues and vices to his life. There's some twists and turns to his story. This is this morality tale that, that is really all about wisdom. That as we really dwell in his life and we do the hard work of trying to understand these subtle things that are going on, we're able to kind of mine this wisdom from his life. You see, in, in Saul's life, there's moments where he, he does allow the Spirit to reign in his life. There's these high moments that we're going to see today where he demonstrates great faithfulness and he prophesies. But then there's also these low moments where he doesn't allow the Spirit to reign. And then he's paralyzed by fear, but the Spirit is faithful to him. A couple more points about the context of this passage. The, the, the theme of 1 Samuel 9 to 15, I think, is blindness. You see, Saul, the people of God, the nation of Israel, they were all blinded by the wisdom of the world. If only they would have a king, like all the other nations, then everything would work out. That's being blinded by the wisdom of the world. God gives them a king, but he gives them a king, which comes with all the troubles that come from having a human king. They were blinded by the wisdom of the world, and they weren't trusting the wisdom of the word. 1 Samuel 10, it's an account of the anointing of King Saul as the first king of Israel. It's broken into two parts, and we're going to look at it as two parts. The first part is, is the private anointing. It's just he and the prophet Samuel. The second part is his public anointing. There's a contrast between these two parts. One's private, one's public, but there's more going on than that. In the first account, we're going to see some virtues of Saul. He, he allows the Spirit to reign, and these virtues follow. But then in, in the public anointing, he, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't trust the Lord, and we see these vices of fear that happen. The first thing I want you to see is that when no one is around, 
Allow the Spirit to reign in your heart. Look with me at, the, at these uh, first nine verses. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, and he poured it on his head, and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and, and, you, uh, and you will save them from the hand of their, uh, of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his inheritance. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin in Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go uh, on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gebeth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Verse 7, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to offer an offering, uh, to offer burnt offerings and a sacrifice, and, 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 and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Let's stop there. Again, these, these first verses are an account of the private anointing. Now, uh, the, we live in the United States, and I think by God's grace, we don't have a king or a queen. But in, in the United Kingdom, it's one of the last monarchies in the world. And we just saw the passing of really who I think was a great person, Queen Elizabeth. She had the, the longest reign of any monarch in the, in the United Kingdom. And then last month, we saw the coronation of her son, King Charles. And if you watch that, that coronation was just filled with magical pomp and circumstance, right? Everything that you saw was just loaded with significance. And what they were trying to accomplish in that coronation moment it was trying to bring the divine into that moment as this stamp of approval on King, on King Charles. Something similar is happening in this scene. However, the prophet Samuel, this is the, the first time they have a king. And so he's kind of setting some precedents. And what he's trying to clearly communicate is, is that this is a sacred moment. He's trying to bring the divine into this moment. And so he goes back to when they anointed priests and, and priestly vestments in Leviticus 8 and in Numbers 7. And, and he does some similar things of anointing with oil. And then he, and then he kisses uh, uh, the, the new king. And that kiss is this kiss of, of approval, of, of really divine approval. And so he's trying to, to bring the sacred into this moment. And in addition to the, to the oil and the kiss, the prophet then prophesies. And so in that moment, he becomes the voice of God. He, he speaks for God himself. And, and in this moment, there's this divine stamp of approval. And, and, and we're going to see this structure in the nation of Israel moving forward. 
But, but the prophet plays a key role in this moment, and he's going to play a key role even moving forward in the history of Israel. That, that the, the king is not above the law, and the king is actually not above the prophet either, because the prophet has this role of rebuking the king. The, the prophets weren't these, these lackeys of the king, just doing whatever the king wanted, then trying to manipulate the people. The prophets were supposed to speak truth to power, as we say it today. The prophets had this role of rebuking the king when he needed rebuke. You see, there's limits to human power, and prophets were the ones who were to set those limits. Samuel gave uh, Saul this solemn charge. If you look back at the text, he, he calls him to reign and to save. You see, his role as a king was to reign over the people. What that meant is, is when there was injustice, he was to bring justice. When there was chaos, he was to bring order. And also he was to save, meaning he was to protect his people from the threats of all the nations around him. This was the framework of the charge. This is what a king was supposed to do. But, but he wasn't to protect or, to, or, or to, to reign or to save over all peoples of all nations. He specifically talks about God's inheritance or, or God's heritage as it translates in the ESV. What, what he's talking about there is, is he's talking about God's people. The, the, the nation of Israel, that's who he was supposed to reign over. That's who he was to save. And, and just to give a further stamp of approval, to give a further sign that this is God's choice, he, he then makes... Uh, makes three prophecies. He, he, he states three signs to validate that Saul is God's anointed. The first one has to do with a lost donkey. And if you weren't with us last week, that's a reference back to the previous chapter where we learned that, that Saul, the, the son of Kish, they were donkey keepers. And we also noted that they, he probably wasn't a good donkey keeper because he lost his donkey. How do you lose a donkey? It's a big animal. And they couldn't find the donkey. They traveled everywhere couldn't find it. And then Samuel makes this prophecy that the donkey has made its way back home. And so this, this is, uh, harkens back to the previous chapter and that initial prophecy. The second sign then authenticates Saul's anointing. So this, this goat, this bread, this, this wine that, that is brought up and, and they uh, interact with along the path, these are pilgrims bringing that to the priest. And, and so there's an anointing aspect that's going on there. But the third sign, that's really the most important one because this authenticates the presence of God in Saul's life. In that moment, we know that God was with him. We know that this was God's selection because God fills him with the Spirit and he's going to prophesy. So he would be filled in such a way that he would become the very mouthpiece of God, the word of God. Now notice that the way Samuel describes this is that the spirit would rush upon him, is what the ESV says. Now if, if that term sounds familiar, then you're right. Because in Judges, this is the same term that was used with regards to Samson. Now if you're a, a you know, an elementary boy, you know who Samson is. He was always my favorite character in the Bible because he's basically like Hercules, okay? He's a super powerful guy, but he wasn't that on his own. It was when the Spirit rushed upon him. When the Spirit rushed upon him, he had all this power and he, he killed beasts and he killed scores of Philistines. That, that's how it worked in, in Samson's case. But in Saul's case, when the Spirit rushed upon him, he, he became the mouthpiece of God. God filled him with his word and he was able to prophesy. In both instances, it was a sign of God's anointing, God's, God's presence. So you see, Saul's selection, it, it was not humanly manipulated or conjured up. Saul's selection was a gracious work of God. There was no doubt that Saul was God's choice to be king. But, but I, I think the point here, and, and I think this is obvious, but just to say it, the, the Spirit's presence in the heart, it's more powerful than anything in the heart. Do you see that? 
The Spirit's presence in the heart is more powerful than anything else in the heart. Now, taking Paul's language from the New Testament, you still have the the vestiges of your sinful flesh in your heart, right? Listen, the Spirit is more powerful than the flesh, amen? And listen, there's demonic forces that can, that can go around, but, but the good news is the Spirit is more powerful than even demonic forces. Therefore, allow the Spirit to fill you. Yield yourself to the empowering presence of God. Allow Him to reign. Look with me at verses 9 to 13. When he, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to uh, Geba, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is his father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Let's stop there. The prophecy is fulfilled. The the empowering presence of God comes on Saul. And we see in verse 9, not not only has the Spirit rushed upon him, but we see in verse 9 it's described as, as God gave him another heart. So this rushing is this overpowering image. But this image of giving another heart, this is a replacement image. What was dead or old, now he has this this new thing. But both of those images tell us something about God's presence. You see, when we are in God's presence, the Spirit just powerfully overcomes us. It gives us something new in place of something dead or something old. So the filling of the Spirit, it brings strength and it brings life. When you're empowered by the Spirit, it brings strength and it brings life. Now, now, prophets tended to be sons of prophets. That's the key point on understanding this kind of strange proverb that they throw at him. Prophets tended to be sons of prophets. However, all of a sudden, this son of a donkey keeper is prophesying. It was just confusing to them. It it was odd, okay? And and listen, probably that proverb is is said in jest, okay? But but the point is, is that something divine was clearly happening. Listen, if it was just the son of a prophet who was prophesying, not a big deal. But but the son of a donkey keeper is also all all of a sudden prophesying. Something is going on here. God is moving in some sort of unique way. Those points really get to what it means to be filled by the Spirit. When, When we allow the Spirit to reign in our heart, he, he, he then empowers us in areas that were weak. He, he then gives us a new heart where we were dead. And then it's clear that he's reigning. You see, when, when you uh, allow the Spirit to reign in your life, there's fruit that comes from that. It's going to look different for everybody, but there's fruit that comes from this new heart. This heart that is empowered uh, by the Spirit. In other words, you can grow and you can change. Because the Spirit is more powerful than anything else going on in your heart, and that because he strengthens and gives new life, and that's evidenced by this fruit on the outside, it means that, that, that God can grow you and God can change you. He can even prophesy through the son of a keeper of donkeys. Do you see that? Christian, in other words, the Spirit is with you. Isn't that good news? No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter the high, no matter the low, the Spirit of God is with you, and he's more powerful than anything else going on in your heart. Look at 14 to 16. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, 
to seek the donkeys. And when he saw that they were, they were not to be found, he went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkey had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell them anything. I think these few verses are just transitioning from the, from the private anointing to the public anointing. It, it's moving the story along. But, but there's, uh, there's some clues about something that is, is taking place here. Why didn't, why didn't King Saul, why didn't he tell them, uh, his uncle, the full story? You see, the, the principal takeaway, I think, from the private anointing is that the Spirit of God can reign in our hearts, thus giving us divine power and new life. And then that new life, that new power, it, it leads to fruit. I think that's the, the point of this, this first section. But what you see in Saul's life here in, in this chapter, but even moving forward in his life, is there's almost a sense that the Spirit kind of comes and goes. But, but one of the, the great, greatest news, if you will, of the gospel is that's not how it works in our life. You, you see, in Saul's life, maybe the, the Spirit would come and go, but, but Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 44, 3, that, the, that there would be a day where the Spirit would, would just be poured out, that God would pour out His Spirit on His people. It would be like this, this washing, this, this waterfall. They, they would just be overwhelmed by the Spirit. And then when you move into the, the New Testament, Jesus talked about in John 14 about this Spirit, this one who would come, and He described Him as a helper, that I'm going to send a helper to you. And then when you skip ahead to Acts 2, the, the Spirit comes indwelling in the church at Pentecost, and the Spirit remains. And so since the Spirit was indwelt in every born-again believer, John 14, 17, the Spirit remains with you. It's different than in Saul's life where maybe it comes and goes. The, the Spirit in your life, if you're a Christian, He remains to the degree that 1 Corinthians 6 talks about us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit resides with us. That moment you're converted, the Spirit comes and indwells, and He is with you, and nothing you can do can kick Him out. In other words, that same Spirit that rushed upon Samson, that same Spirit that rushed upon Saul, He is now indwelling you. He's with you. He's for you. That, that same Spirit that gave Saul a new heart, He can bring new life to you. That same Spirit that empowered him, He can also empower you. This account of Saul's anointing, it really is a call to allow God to reign in your heart. You see, whatever you've not given over to him, yield to his power in your heart. Whatever is old, whatever is destructive, yield to his power. Give it over to him. Let him change you. Let him grow you. Allow God to reign in your heart. But, but the contrast between the, the two anointings is private and public. And I think there's something in the reality that the, the first anointing is private and the second is public, especially as it relates to the Spirit. And it's this, that allow the Spirit to reign, especially when no one is around. Like in those private, quiet moments of your life, the early morning hours, that those, those sleepless nights, that, that, that commute, let, let Him reign in your thought life in those moments. Fight the fight of faith in those, those private moments, those quiet moments. Do the heart work when no one is around. You see, the, the quiet, private walk with God, that's how we experience His empowering presence. It's in those quiet moments when no one is around that we're to let the Spirit reign. Let's shift to the, to the public. When everyone is around, allow the Spirit to strengthen your heart. 17 to 19. Now Samuel called the, the, the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hands of and the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you've said to and you've said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves for the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Verse 16, the, the first 16 verses, this is the, the private anointing, and now we're shifting to the public anointing. And we're supposed to see these two scenes in contrast. Like in the first scene, we see Saul faithfully allowing God to reign in his heart, if you will. And then we see the fruit of that, him, him prophesying, being faithful. But now in this second scene, we're going to watch him not allow God reign in his heart, reject that, and, and as a result, fear follows. He's, he's consumed with fear as people are watching him. Once again, at this public anointing, the, the prophet has this, thus saith the Lord moment. This hallmark of, of what it means to, to be a prophet and have a prophetic ministry speaking for God. And in that moment, he, what, the things that he says, they carry extra weight, they carry extra authority. Now hear me, I, I don't think we can, as Christians today, speak with an errant infallibility. But, but there is a sense as Christians and as Christians leaders that we are to have a prophetic voice in our culture. You see, Samuel communicates the heart of God. Likewise, we're to communicate the heart of God to those around us. And, and what he communicates is interesting. Really what he does beginning, there's kind of a retelling of, of, of history, right? Like, like he goes back in time and retells the history of God's relationships to his people. God, the hero, pulls them out of Egypt. God, God, the victor, brings them into the promised land. He, he protects them from their oppressors. But, but then who's the bad guy in the retelling, if you will? It, it's God's people who embrace the, the wisdom of the world over the wisdom of the word and say, give us a king. And, and so God does give them a king. But, but in the context of the wisdom of the word, he kind of balances. He gives them a king, but, but including all the bad things of the king. But from God's perspective again, He's been faithful to them, but, but they haven't trusted him. They haven't sworn their ultimate allegiance to him in, in asking for another king. We need to remember and preach to, when we remember and preach to ourselves, it softens and strengthens our hearts. That's really why he goes back to this. You see, when we have hard hearts, when we have unbelieving hearts, when we have fearful hearts, when we have anxious hearts, we're to do what, what the prophet did that day. We're to preach to ourselves. We're, we're to go back to the history. We're, we're to go back to the history of God's faithfulness. And, and that's how he softens our hearts. That's how he strengthens our hearts. That, that's what the prophet is doing in this moment. He's softening their heart and he's strengthening them for this moment. But, but there's also a rebuke in the historical telling. There's a rebuke of them uh, of wanting uh, this human king. There's a rejection of God's reign. And so again, they embrace the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of the word includes the negatives of having a human king. Let's keep going in verses 20 to 24. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan, and the clan of uh, uh, the matriarchs, were taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. And they inquired again of the Lord, Is there man, man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, 
Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. The nation at the time is divided and subdivided into 12 tribes and clans and families. And and this process of drawing lots takes place. There's different ways they they did this. Today, if you're playing some sort of game and you tear up pieces of paper and you write names on it and throw it in a hat, that's essentially what's going on here. But, but the point of that is, is that this isn't a, a, a human selection. There's no vote taking place. The, 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 the elders and the wise people are not getting together and making a recommendation. This is God's choice. That's the point of this, is this is God's prerogative. Saul to be the king of Israel, this is God's choice. And, and, and even though in chapter 9, we saw these subtle, nuanced red flags, here at the beginning of, of chapter 10, we see the real virtues of Saul. Like he's faithful, he, he lets the spirit reign in his heart, if you will, and then he, he prophesies, we, we see good things in his life. And, and this is where kind of the work of wisdom uh, is needed. You see, he's not a clear good guy or a clear bad guy. He's not a complete fool. I, I, think, I think he's a real person. This demonstrates the reality of his life, that there's moments, there's these high moments where he's faithful. And then there are these low moments where he's just marked and, and really paralyzed by, by fear. He, he's hiding in the luggage. This isn't a good sign. This isn't a good start if you're going to be the king of a nation, right? Like if you're so paralyzed by fear, you hide in the luggage. You see, this is a sign that even though he looked like a king, according to the wisdom of the world, he doesn't, he doesn't have the heart of a king, right? There's something off here. He's tall on the outside, but he's small on the inside. You see, Saul forgot about God's empowering presence through the ups and downs of life. You see, he, is, he, is, uh, he was with Saul, and he was for Saul. There have been all these signs that he'd given him, and it was like Saul totally forgot all of it. You see, in the same way, he's with you and he's for you. And like Saul, you can forget that, right? And you can choose not to believe that. Romans 8, 31 to 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's good news, isn't it? The good news is that the Spirit does not leave us, and God is always for us. Isn't that good news? Like, like, isn't that good news when you're paralyzed by fear? When you're on stage and everyone's watching you? When you're called to be the king of a country? You see, in the same way, God's with you in those moments. And even in those public moments, He's with you and He's for you. You see, the the point of these final 10 verses is that when everyone is around, allow the Spirit to strengthen your heart. See, Saul is struggling because he fears men more than he fears God. And so he's hiding in the luggage. He's paralyzed by his fear. And he needs to remember and believe that God cares for him enough to be with him and for him. That God's presence was with him. And that that presence is an empowering presence. However, Saul's imperfections here, they're not in conflict with God's sovereignty. Isn't that strange? He's a very imperfect king, and he's also God's selection to be king. He's an imperfect king that God sovereignly has chosen to be king. Let me say it this way. The Lord chooses imperfect people. If you're an ameter, 
that's when you amen in this sermon. Are you with me? God chooses imperfect people. You see, the doctrine of election is clear in Scripture. You see it in Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob. You see it in some clowns like Abraham and David and Peter and Paul. Sinners like you and me. God has been saving people in spite of themselves from the beginning. Amen? You see, like Saul, election and sovereign choice, they have less to do with human righteousness and more to do with divine graciousness. Saul didn't deserve this. I think you can make a great case that he was a terrible candidate for this. But this was God's choice. Listen, that, that, that's the ground of the phrase we use around here, broken people loving broken people. But listen, it, it's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. It's, it's about His grace to make you right. And then out of that, we then love people. Election should not be a doctrine leading to pride, but to humility. That's the point. He was a terrible candidate. He was an imperfect person, but he was God's choice. Election should not be a doctrine leading to pride, but to humility. Even though this is a troubling start for King Saul, the the people swear allegiance to him. And again, we have to return back to that category of wisdom to kind of understand the virtues and vices in that moment. They're, in a very real sense, a good thing that they're swearing allegiance to him. But, But we can also swear ultimate allegiance to a human over God, and so then it be, can become a vice. That's, this, is where, uh, this is what enables us to be helpful citizens in a country. And we can say, listen, my ultimate allegiance is not to whatever president is the president at the time. My ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. That actually makes me a better uh, citizen in our country. Let's finish up here, 25 to, to 27. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid them up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at, at Geba. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, talking about Samuel, or, or talking about Saul, but he held his peace. Talking about this, uh, this book, this is probably a reference to Deuteronomy 17, which speaks to the, to the laws concerning kings. This is an interesting note because it highlights that the king was not above the law. Okay, The king was not above the word of God. He, he was to rule under the word of God. And it also highlights the, the role of a, of a prophet in, in preaching the word of God to the king. Samuel was going to rebuke Saul. Nathan famously in 2 Samuel 12 rebukes David. Friends, Christians likewise are to be good patriotic citizens. We're not to be anarchists. Generally speaking, we're not to be revolutionaries. But however, we are to speak truth to power. We have a prophetic role in our society. That's part of what it means to be a good citizen as a Christian is to, to speak into these issues. However, we need wisdom and balance in that prophetic role because we have verses like Romans 13.1, right? Which says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. If you're keeping track, during my adult life, which I just turned 45, I'm getting older every day, it just sounds old. Most of the people that I voted for for president have lost. I I think it's me. I'm, I'm like a... You know, I'm bad luck or something. Which means 
my adult life, for the most part, people that I haven't voted for have been the ones who have won. But Romans 13.1 still applies. I'm still to be subject to them. Saul, in a similar way, was clearly an imperfect monarch, right? But they were still expected to submit to God's selection of him as the king. So from the beginning of Saul's reign, you have some who faithfully did what they were supposed to do. And some, I think understandably, who really had objections to him. But see, in both those categories, if you notice, it speaks about language of the heart. Those men of valor who, who God had touched their heart. They, they faithfully follow Saul. But then there were others who rejected him. And they were really right on the line of not just rejecting Saul. They were rejecting God. They were rejecting God's choice. Now, now hear me, that's not to say everything that Saul does is faithful to the word of God. We know that not to be true. The same with our rulers. But we are to be submissive. The chapter closes then with this interesting and, and really what I think is a significant comment. Look at Verse 27 about uh, Saul's heart at the end. It said in the face of criticism, he held his peace. So once again, the the chapter closes by returning to Saul's heart. It closes to his insides. So even though Saul was not believing the gospel and he was hiding in fear in the luggage, God still did something good. God wasn't done with him when he was in the luggage. He was still enabling Saul to respond with grace in the face of criticism. You see, in that moment, he was at peace with God. He was at peace with others. And he's able to respond to that criticism with this kind of statesman-like grace. God was with him. God wasn't done with him when he was stuck in the luggage. Friends, like last week in chapter 9, 1 Samuel 10, it it paints an interesting picture of King Saul. He's complex, isn't he? I think his complexity demonstrates his reality. And, and there's moments in his life when, when, when he should be commended. And this chapter shows some of those moments. He, he faithfully prophesies. But there's also these moments that he becomes a morality tale of how not to do it. He, he's paralyzed by fear, stuck in the luggage. But, but Saul, he, he's not really the hero of this chapter, right? Listen, 1 Samuel 10 is not to say, go do it like Saul. He's not the good news of that passage, right? Like, listen, the the good news of 1 Samuel 10 is that God's empowering presence to change hearts, that that remains through all the ups and downs. Even though he was stuck in the luggage, God wasn't done with him. He still gave him uh, uh, this ability to to respond in peace, respond in graciousness uh, uh, in the face of criticism there at the very end. But but we need to be careful when we talk about the, the presence of God in our lives. Because we're not robots, right? We're not, we're not puppets. Now listen, it's certainly true that the Spirit uh, blows uncontrollably where it wishes, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. It's like the wind. But, but also, it, it rushed on Samuel and Saul. They, they were overtaken by it, if you will. And, and then we see this fruit of, rushing, of the rushing wind of the Spirit. And, and Samson, uh, he, he's empowered by it. Saul prophesied. Uh, Saul was at peace in the face of criticism. But we also see fruit in both of those men's lives when they're not yielded to the Spirit. When they're not letting the Spirit reign. So if you look at Samson, he lustfully pursued a wicked woman. Saul feared uh, men more than he feared the Lord. But, But here's my question. How do we experience God's empowering presence? Is there anything we can do? Are we just pinging around and... Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. 
How can we yield ourselves to the Spirit, to, to allow Him to change us and to grow us? I think the best verse on those questions is Romans 8.5. Romans 8.5 says, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I think this private-public contrast of 1 Samuel 10, it gives us a clue about God's presence. You see, in the, in the quiet moments, those private moments, we're to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We're to think about those things. But we're not to think about the things of the flesh. We're to think about the things of the Lord. Friends, the way you prophesy, the way you live at peace when people criticize you, it's through setting your mind on the things that are above. Those alone times, that's the time to fight. That's the time to fight the fight of faith. That's the, the, the time to take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians, 5, or 2 Corinthians 10, 5. You see, you can control your thoughts. You're not captive to those things. You can control the inner man because of the good news that Jesus has sent you a helper. He sent you a helper in those moments. So when you recognize your thoughts, when you recognize, okay, my thoughts are on fleshly image, images or they're on fleshly fears, you're to cry out in that moment, Spirit, help me. Help me in that moment. Help me to turn my thoughts on what is pure. Turn my thoughts on what is true. Turn my thoughts on what are hopeful and good. And, and friend, asking Him to help you, to help you set your minds on the things of the Spirit, that's what it means to walk according to the Spirit. It, it, it's not more mystical and magical and unknown than that. When, when in those moments you recognize, I'm not walking according to the Spirit. You diagnose yourself and you say, Spirit, help me. And the Spirit blows in like a rushing wind. That's what it means to walk according to the Spirit. God promises His empowering presence to you. This is one of the great reasons Jesus died for you. That empowering presence, it's more powerful than anything else going on on the inside. Your thoughts, your fleshly desires, even demonic forces. Therefore, His indwelling presence can change your heart. You don't have to remain hidden in the luggage the rest of your life. That doesn't have to be your destiny. The Spirit of God is more powerful than anything that puts Saul in that luggage. And further, be encouraged he promises His empowering presence even through the ups and the down. You might not do it perfectly, but He won't leave you. Amen? Going back to Joe. Joe had a, had a friend from college who was an elder at a, at a church. He hadn't talked to him in years, but he'd seen kind of churchy things on, on social media every now and then. And so he, he just didn't know where to turn. He needed wisdom. So he, he reached out to his friend. Over lunch, uh, Joe shared about his... Uh, his personnel evaluation, shared about the separation from his wife. And, and initially, the, the friend just patiently listened to him. The man uh, then asked an interesting question. He said, okay, Joe, how does someone get into heaven? And Joe kind of fumbled around, and he talked about his good works. And then he honestly admitted he didn't really know, and that was kind of part of why he was reaching out to his friend. And so with, with a napkin, his friend wrote out Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He, that friend then led Joe to saving faith in Christ over cheeseburgers. His friend then asked if they could begin meeting regularly. And as they met, they just studied the Bible together. And there wasn't lightning bolts necessarily, but as Joe learned more about the Word, learned more about the Gospel, 
he began to see little changes and he learned how to yield to the spirit. And then he began to really grow. And what that meant for him is that he just begged God to help him be more patient. He begged God to, to, to bite his tongue at work. He begged God to, to sacrificially love his wife. He begged God to, to sacrificially love her, especially when he felt wronged by her. As months went by, his co-workers, his family took notice. They were seeing real changes in his life. Friends, God is sovereign over the hearts. And however, we tend to not allow him to, to fill our hearts in those private mo- moments and certainly not strengthen our hearts in the public. We, we take charge of our hearts, right? But that results in, in a lack of joy and being paralyzed by fear. Saul is like us in so many ways. He, he was filled with ups and downs. However, God was faithful to him. That's the good news of this passage. Not that Saul was great, but God's great. Therefore, God's, Saul's anointing, it teaches us about God's empowering presence to change our hearts through both the ups and the downs. Are you experiencing his empowering presence? Let's pray. Father God, we, I thank you for the life of an imperfect man. Certainly helps us identify. Lord, I thank you for the fact that not not that Saul was some sort of a hero, but, but that you're really the hero of this passage. That through his high moments and his low moments, that you were with him. We thank you that that, that same spirit that, that rushed upon Samson and rushed upon Saul, that same spirit indwells us. It's still empowering us. Lord, I pray that we would yield ourselves to you. I pray that we would be a people that lets you reign in our heart. Lord, in whatever way that you're not reigning in our hearts today, may we yield ourselves to your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray.